How many of you would consider yourselves uh, to be competitive game players? Oh, come on now. You've got to admit this. All right, that's better. You get into a, a game night, friends and family, and, you know, it, it doesn't take long for that to turn ugly sometimes, right? The worst thing is when you're playing, when you're a competitive game player and you're playing with people who aren't. Right? I mean, you're saying, I want to win. And they're saying, oh, we're just here to have fun. No, we're not. We're here to win. That's the point of it. (laughs) It's not about having fun. Fun has nothing to do with it. This is about winning. I was reading recently about a woman who uh, considered herself a competitive game player. And she was with some friends one night and they were playing the game Pictionary. You know, many of you probably played that game. You you draw a card, it has uh, something on it, name on it, and you try to draw a picture in such a way that your team guesses what you're drawing. And um, she said she drew the card and she looked at it for a couple of seconds and didn't even know how to respond. She said, "I'm, I'm pretty good at this game. But she said, I looked at this card and it said the word difficult. Can you imagine? How do you draw difficult? And she said, she's pretty good at this, but for 60 seconds while the timer went click, 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 she just stood there blank. She had no idea what to do. And her team was saying, come on, draw something. I don't know what to draw. And the timer went off and she said, how ironic. It's so difficult to draw difficult. And then she realized that the card she had drawn was not one of the cards in a pack. It wasn't, you know... Chihuahua or Apple or church. It was one of the instruction cards. (laughs) It was dividing the cards that were easy and the cards that were difficult. (laughs) And, And the minute I read that, I thought to myself, you know, I think there's something about our struggle with prayer in that. Because sometimes we, we, we feel like we're thinking about prayer and it seems so difficult. It seems so complex. Just the moment we believe we've finally gotten all that we think about and understand about prayer in the box, it hops out again. Just when we think we've built the fence around our understanding of prayer and we figured it out, the fence falls. I am convinced that prayer is one of those parts of our relationship with God that, in a sense, is unending to our knowledge. Because every time we feel like we've got it, there's a little bit more. And there's a little bit more. And sometimes when we begin to understand that, it becomes very frustrating I've talked to people who've gotten to the point where they feel so inadequate in their understanding of prayer that they've given up. I just don't know what to do anymore. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what I should pray, what I shouldn't pray. I don't know how to pray. And I've decided I, I just don't know what to do and I've given up. I don't know if that's exactly what's in the mind of the disciples when they come to Jesus here in Luke 11, but I wonder. I wonder if they haven't realized there's so much about prayer that we thought we knew and now we realize we don't know. I think they would resonate with our struggles. And that's why over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about prayer. And it's not that when we get to the end of it, we'll now be able to all say, okay, I've got it now and I understand it and we tie it up in the box and we're finished. But rather, 
sort of like we've looked at some facets of the diamond. And maybe a few things make more sense, but really the ultimate goal is that in the end, you and I are more engaged as people who pray. That's the ultimate goal. And when we get to the end of October and the beginning of November, we will engage once again the the 10th year of our three-week 24-7 prayer vigil. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. It's interesting to me that in Luke 11, we have something that doesn't occur anywhere else in all the scriptures. This is the only time that the, it's recorded that the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have recorded the disciples saying to Jesus, teach us how to do this. It, we don't have, they don't say, teach us to preach, teach us to cast out demons, teach us to do miracles, teach us to know how to handle the Pharisees. Now, they may have asked him those things, but the scripture, the scripture doesn't record it for us. But the one thing Scripture does record for us is the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord... Teach us to pray. I think Luke thinks that's pretty significant. And what triggers this question is they've been watching Jesus pray. He begins chapter 11 saying, Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. And as he finished, the disciples came to him and one of them said, Lord, teach us to pray. We've watched you pray. We've seen you pray. Could you teach us how to do that? It's kind of an odd thing sometimes in our minds to think about learning to pray. Because something in us wants to believe that prayer is just something you do. It's not something you learn, it's just something you do. You just pray. And, and we have this sense that you wake up and you pray. You're walking along and you pray. You, you have some need and you pray. It's just something you do. And it almost seems counterintuitive to think that we learn to pray. And yet, when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them, he doesn't say, Oh, I can't teach you to pray. You just have to know how to just do it. No, he answers them. Because the reality is, anything that's important to us, we learn how to do. If you want to learn how to be a a, a concert pianist, you learn, you practice, you watch, you take lessons, you do everything in your power and everything that you ever, all the time and energy you can find to accomplish this accomplishment. If it's important, we give ourselves to it, we learn. If you want to make the best cheesecake in the world, then you watch YouTube videos about people making cheesecake. And you talk to people. And you throw out a bunch of them because they're not very good. And eventually you keep practicing. But that's what we do. And if it's that important to us, we invest our time and energy into it. And I think Jesus is saying, in answer to the disciples' question, if prayer is important to you, then you invest yourself learning about how to pray. It is a learned discipline such as reading scripture and coming to worship and engaging ourselves. And so Jesus says, all right, I'll teach you to pray. And he says, here's a model for praying. Here's how you pray. And he gives us a a version of the prayer we prayed a few moments ago. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and, and help us. Let us yield to temptation. 
And some people have taken this prayer and said, okay, this is magic. This is, this is, if you pray this prayer, then you've got it. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, here's a pattern. Here's a, here's a skeleton. Here's a structure. And what is that? Well, it's declaring who God is. It is, it is declaring that we want whatever God wants to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. That we give thanks to God because he has provided everything in our lives that we need. That we recognize anything good we do in the world for other people is rooted in what good God does for us. Centered in forgiveness. And we recognize that sin has a grip on us and a hold on us and we need God's help to overcome it. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, what do you pray? Everything, anything, all of it. All of life is about praying. Everything about life should be involved in your prayers. And God is at the center of that. And I suspect at that point, the disciples said, okay, Lord, thank you. That's good. They closed their notebooks, put down their pens, bell rings, time to go to the next thing. And Jesus said, whoa, wait a second, I'm not done yet. And verse 5 of Luke 11 said, and Jesus wanted to teach them more about prayer. And so he tells them this story. And so often, we want the formula. That's all we're looking for. Lord, give us a formula that we can check off a list. Give us a model that we can, that we can follow, and that's what we really want. And I think that's probably what they were looking for. And so they got what they wanted, but Jesus said prayer is about so much more than that. So let me tell you a story, guys. He tells him the story about a guy whose friend comes at midnight, he needs bread, he goes to his neighbor, and he gets it. I think the context of the story is important because it's not something that we are all that familiar with. This is not probably something that happens to us all that often. Because if, if we, somebody comes to our house and we don't have food to feed them, we go to the store. But that's not the case for them in first century Palestine. More than likely, the story is rooted in the culture of hospitality that is so vital to individuals, to families, and to villages. Your reputation is grounded and rooted in how you treat strangers, how you treat people who come to visit you. You feed them, you house them, you take care of them. And if you don't, the whole reputation of everyone in the village is smeared. And so this guy has a friend who comes to visit him, and for some reason he's out of bread. Jesus tends to exaggerate the stories that he tells. The fact that someone would be out of bread probably is unlikely. But it's possible. And you almost get the sense that Jesus is saying to him, can you imagine a, a, a time when a friend would come to you at midnight, come that late, and you wouldn't have bread? And they'd probably say, no, I can't imagine that. He says, well, think about it. Let's imagine that that's the case. What are you going to do? Are you going to admit that you don't have what you should have and go to you to ask for help? Or are you going to try to fake it? Are you going to try to find some other way around it? Try to get out of it? I've been trying to think of a modern example. And it struck me that of something like this. When I was in college in the summers, I worked at a sawmill. I love working at the sawmill. First of all, it's interesting to me. I love to know how things work. 
And so you, in this sawmill, the logs would come in, huge pieces of logs. And the first thing they do is go through the debarking process. And they'd cut them into slabs. And eventually, they would end up as two-by-fours, mostly. And uh, I also loved that job because it paid very well, which was a nice benefit. I could work all summer and pay off my school bill for the entire year. School wasn't expensive then as it is now, but nevertheless, I made pretty good money. You didn't get paid as much then as you do now either, but, but I made good money. And I was at the low end of the totem pole. I, my job was to clean the mill and to, to uh, be the security guard for the evening, a couple of us, which you can look at me and go, well, of course you'd be a security guard. Everyone would see that, right? Yes. Because <laughs> I'm an intimidating presence to someone who wants to steal things from the mill. Mainly it was cleaning up and... Uh, Taking a walk every so often to make sure things were there. So, you know, we'd, we'd clean the mill, go to work at 10 at night. And the second shift would usually get done around 1, 1.30. And we would work and then we'd clean the mill while nobody was there. And the first shift would then come at 6 o'clock in the morning. And they would work through the day and we'd keep repeating that. And every so often, somebody on first shift would call in sick. And so the foreman would come to one of us and say, hey, you guys want to work a double shift? So instead of working from 10 to 6.30, you work from 10 to 2.30. In the afternoon. And we would always jump at that if we could. Because not only were we working more hours, getting paid more, we get time and a half. Because it's overtime. So it was great. We make a lot of money doing that. Usually we got stuck on the green chain. And the green chain is kind of the lower end of the jobs at the mill. You're pulling boards off of this long chain, 75 feet long chain or so. And you're putting them onto carts. And they have to get on the right cart. The right boards have to be together on the right cart. You have to stack them the right way so they can be bound and then taken by a forklift. And, so they're, and they're just continually coming at you. And so there are three or four of us on the green chain. And they always stuck, those of us who were filling in, at the worst place on the green chain. At the very end with the largest, heaviest, biggest boards. So I'm down there. And the first time I did this, they told me, here's what you do. And I'm like, okay, okay. I don't know what I was doing. And I'm, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And the boards are coming at me faster and faster. And they're heavier and heavier. And I'm dropping them on the ground. And I'm throwing them all over the place because they just keep coming. And eventually, the board, the whole chain is filled with wood because they're waiting on me. And they stop the chain. And they come down there. And they're complaining and grumbling and saying other things to me. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they say, what is wrong with you? I said, well, I, I, I got lost. I didn't know what to do. Why didn't you ask us? And what did I say? Because I didn't want to look stupid. Right? You're sitting in class. You have no idea what's being talked about. Do you ask the question? What keeps us from asking, I don't understand. We don't want to look stupid. You're in a meeting and everyone seems to be getting with conversation except for you. And you're, why don't you ask? Because we don't want to look stupid. I ought to know. And Jesus is saying in this parable, you ought to have bread, but you don't. So will you go to your neighbor? And verse 8 really is a key element of this story. He says... He says, if your friend won't get up and give you bread because you're a friend, he will get up because of, some translations say boldness, some say persistence. The word used here means shameless. And the NIV translates it shameless audacity. It's humility. It's saying, I'm willing to humble myself because I have a friend who's in need. I cannot do what I need to do. So I will humble myself, I'll be transparent, I'll be vulnerable, and I'm going to go ask for bread. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, what's the attitude and the spirit in which we come to prayer? Acknowledging our neediness. 
Acknowledging that we don't have all the answers, that we can't solve all of our problems, that we can't solve probably any of our problems without God. We need Him. And what's fascinating is that when you move on through this section, Jesus seems to be equating that kind of transparency and vulnerability with confidence and boldness when we pray. You would think it'd be the other way around. You, know, you would think that if we are being transparent and vulnerable, we sort of try to sneak into that, not come boldly and declare, I need help. But Jesus says, this shameless audacity leads us into a mindset that he says, ask and you'll receive and seek and you'll find and knock and the door will be open to you. And actually the New Living Translation gives the tenses, the tense of the verbs here that say keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep doing this. Don't be afraid to ask and seek and knock. When you feel humble, you're right in God's wheelhouse right where he wants you to be. When you come to him in transparency and vulnerability, you are exactly where God wants you to be. And prayer can be something unbelievable. And you can come with boldness and confidence. Because of us? No, because of him. Because of who he is. Now, sometimes we take this this part of the passage where he says... You know, if you, if you ask, you'll receive. And if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. And people will take that and interpret that as sort of a formula to get God to do what we want. If you ask, God's got to do it. If you seek, God has to do it. If you knock, God has to do it. And it becomes a way of manipulating and controlling God. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. What if the whole point of that is not that we get these results, but it's talking about the reason for those results. What if maybe Jesus is saying, if you never ask, how will you ever receive? If you never seek, how will you ever find? If you never knock, why would you question that the door is not open? It's asking, seeking, knocking in the spirit that opens up the doors for God to experience God's blessings and God's grace. Because ultimately, Jesus says, this is not so much about what you pray or even how you pray. It's about the one to whom you pray. That's the key element. And even going back to the parable, there are numerous ways that people interpret that parable. And and one of them is that the real center, key person in the story is not the neighbor who comes to ask for bread, but the neighbor he asks. Maybe Jesus is saying, you might not get up for your friend. You might only get up if your friend is needy enough, but your heavenly father will get up because he loves you and because he cares for you. Because he's good. Because that's who God is. And Jesus says, you you know your relationships with children. And you love doing good things for children. All of us have connections to children in one way or another. 
our own children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, maybe younger siblings, that neighbor kid that you babysat, that you babysit for. We all have connections to children. And we love to do things for children to make them happy. I mean, we, we just love doing that. We, we love to see the smiles on their faces. We love to see them get excited about things. When we do nice things, when we do good things for them. We all love that. And Jesus says, you think about how much you love that. Multiply that as far out as you possibly can. And that's your father. He loves to do good things for you. He loves you. He is good. That's who he is. But when life gets hard, and when it doesn't feel like our prayers are being answered, and, and it doesn't seem like God is listening, we wonder. One of my professors in seminary said they used to play game with his, he used to play game with his children. When he came home in the evening, put some pennies in his hand, and he closed his fist, and all the, I think he had four children, they would gather around, and they would work at trying to pry open his fingers. And he would stand there holding that fist as tight as he could and they'd get together and two or three of them on a finger and they'd pull and pull and pull until they get it open and they'd pull them all open and finally they got all the fingers open and they'd grab those pennies and they'd run through the house cheering and so excited. They had just opened this great treasure chest. And you know, sometimes, I think, sometimes we view prayer like that. That the point of prayer is that we have to pry open God's fingers to get something good from him. And the reality is God's hands are open and his arms are wide. Because he loves to give good gifts to his children. And sometimes we don't get the good gifts that we want because in our limited perspective, we don't realize that what looks good to us really isn't. And we're so often willing to settle for good, and God is wanting for us best. And we can't see it. And I'm convinced that the greatest obstacle to our prayer life is our view of God. When we begin to understand that God is good, that God's intent for you and for me is good. It changes everything about how we pray. It changes everything about how we connect with God and think of God. It's the heart of all of it. And how do we know that God is good? How do we know that this is who God is? Perhaps the most profound symbol of that is this table. This table awakens us to the goodness of God and the links to which God is willing to go to communicate that to us. Because at this table, we come face to face with all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus in the past. And we come face to face with all of the good promises of God that he's made for us in the future. And they all come together in this table. This table that calls us to come and to eat and to drink of the goodness of our loving Heavenly Father. My prayer for us is that our eyes will be opened just a bit. 
that we will begin to see how glorious it is to learn to pray. Not just because of what we pray or how we pray, but primarily because of the one to whom we pray. And that as we eat and drink today, that truth will become clearer and clearer to each of us. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessed gifts, not the least of which is your desire of intimacy with us. And the gift of your Son. Father, as we gather today, open our eyes to who you are. As we come to this table, help us to see you. Pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we may be filled with the joy of the goodness of who you are. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.